is indeed a great privilege to have the opportunity to share and explore God's Word with you again today, and uh, certainly it's not lost on the preacher when he knows he is the last thing between the people and their fellowship meal. So we will explore God's Word, and we will do it uh, deserving in a way that is, it is uh, deserving of. So this morning we're going to be considering a message from the prophet Haggai. And if, uh, by chance, Haggai is not as familiar to you as some other books of the Bible, no worries, I'll share with you uh, what one of my seminary professors, and I'm sure many others, have shared throughout time, and that is to go to the book of Matthew, turn left, go back a couple of books, and there you will find the message from Haggai. Haggai is indeed one of the last three books of the Old Testament, the other two being Zechariah and Malachi. And these three books are God's word to his people before what would be about a 400-year period of silence uh, from God, before, of course, the time of Jesus Christ. And we'll often hear these prophets referred to in one of two ways. First, we hear to these prophets referred to as the post-exilic prophets, uh, in that these were the men that God chose to speak his words following the time of the exile to Babylon. We'll also hear these prophets referred to as restorationist or restorative prophets in that the content of each of their messages follows a similar theme, which is restoring, rebuilding, and returning Jerusalem to its former glory as it had been prior to the exile. So because we're parachuting into this message this morning, stepping aside briefly from our church's examination of uh, the Gospel of John, I want to provide a little bit of context for what we're entering into. Uh, we, we find actually the context for this nested in the book of Ezra, the first six chapters, and we begin around the year 600 B.C., where we find the Jewish people living in the kingdom of Judah, uh, in southern Israel, where the capital is Jerusalem. Uh, the Jewish people at this time are struggling with priority, they're struggling with sin, and they're struggling with idolatry, and thus God brings a judgment against them. In the year 587 B.C., the armies of the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, they invade Judah, they completely decimate the land, they sack Jerusalem, and in the process, they destroy the temple. And thus, uh, this begins the exile from the promised land. The destruction of the temple, as you can imagine, is a very big deal to the Jewish people at this time. The temple was not only the center for their spiritual, social, and political life, but it was also the place that represented the very indwelling of God with the Jews. The temple was the proof that God was with his people, and it was the place where their sins were atoned, and the very physical structure helped these ancient people recognize and understand God's covenantal relationship with them. So the Babylonians came in 587, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they took the Jews captive into the 50-year period of the exile. And then around the year 539 B.C., the armies of the Persian Empire under the great king Cyrus, they invade Babylon, they conquer the Babylonians, and one of the first things that Cyrus the Persian king does is he issues a decree which allows the people whom he had conquered to return to their homelands and in the process to rebuild the temples and sanctuaries that each of these peoples had uh, respective to their individual gods. So for the Jewish people, this means returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple there. And about 50,000 exiled Jews make the return trek. And there is a great sense of hope associated with this homecoming. When they get back to their land, uh, they get right to work and they lay the foundation for the temple and they even build the altar. But then their spiritual momentum begins to fade. And work stops and time begins to pass. One year, then two years, 
And 14, 15, 16 years pass by and the temple still lays in ruins. God's chosen people have over time become totally self-serving and the priority to rebuild the temple has now been replaced by the priority to take care of themselves. That brings us to the time of the prophet Haggai. Haggai preached over about a four-month period, and one of the neat things about this little two-chapter book is that we have a very high-confidence assessment as to when these events took place, and we know that it actually took place this time of year, autumn, uh, between August and December in the year 520 B.C., and most scholars and preachers assess this to be correct. And while knowing the exact date of a scriptural passage does not make this any more correct or any more inerrant than any other part of the Bible, if you happen to be a history nerd like I am, it's fun to see how the biblical record interacts with the archaeological record, which is how we were able to date, uh, to, to date this passage. So with all that context in mind, and with a bit of a doozy of a passage in front of us, let's read together Haggai chapter 1, the first 11 verses. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it the time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on the labor of all of your hands. May God our Father add his special blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy and perfect word. Friends, I think the, uh, the tone of this passage should stand out. In fact, it was only about 10 minutes ago that we read together this morning as our confession of faith, the passage from 1 Timothy 3.16, which so often in our bulletins is listed as the, the mystery of godliness. And every time we read that together, we are humbly acknowledging that the fullness of what God has offered through His Son, Jesus Christ, is so vast and so bizarre that it can only be described in our words as a mystery. Now, contrast that with what we have here in Haggai. There's not much of a mystery happening here. In fact, there is an effect, or rather a series of effects, and there is a cause that is outlined very very clearly by God through the prophet. The heavens have withheld their due. There is a drought on the fields, mountains, grain, everything else the ground produces, on people, on livestock, and on the labor of the people's hands. Those are all of the effects that he's listed out. And why? 
because the house of the Lord, meaning because the temple, lies in ruin. The tone here is indeed very stark and direct, and it's because the Israelites have neglected to accomplish those things that they were supposed to accomplish first. And there are two unique characteristics of what Haggai says that I think really help us understand the tone of this message. First, take note that God identifies himself here as the Lord Almighty, or perhaps uh, your translation has the Lord of hosts, or we remember from our timeless hymn, Lord Sabaot, his name from age to age the same. Each of these is a, is a military term referring, uh, wherein God's referring to himself as the commander of the armies, right? The commander of the angelic legions, Lord Sabaot. Now here, there's not really a military context into which Haggai is speaking, but we can still safely assess that God is drawing on a very particular type of authority that is unique to himself, the commander of the angelic armies, thus says the Lord of hosts. The second thing I'd like you to note is the rather impersonal way that God addresses his people, describing them simply as these people. Now, imagine for a minute Pastor Chip or one of your elders coming to the pulpit and referring to the gathered saints here at Bethel as these people. Or if the mother or father in a family structure were to simply refer to the rest of the people in their family as these people, though there may be times when we might like to, it would be highly uncharacteristic to describe someone with whom you have such a close and personal bond simply as these people. It's a very stark and impersonal way of describing someone. This is also the case throughout so many other prophetic oracles that we find in Scripture. The God who so often refers to himself simply as the Lord, or often we also hear the Lord of Israel, does from time to time identify himself as the commander of the armies. And when he does, he's hearkening to a very specific authority, again unique to himself, and he's doing so for a reason. The Israelites were returned for a purpose. They were returned from their exile in Babylon for a reason. There are things that they were supposed to accomplish first, namely the restoration of the temple, and that simply hasn't happened. Now, the significance of the temple for the post-exilic Israelites cannot be overlooked. The ancient Israelites knew, and they had known for generations, that the holiness of God cannot come into contact with or cannot be in community with an unholy and sinful people. And so a consecrated, set-apart sanctuary, which took on a a bit of a corresponding holiness, it was necessary, and it was the place that assured the people of the Lord's manifest presence with them. Apart from the temple, the people were lost in their sin. Through God's presence at the temple, though, the people were made just. As one commentator notes of this point, the presence of God in the temple is the source of life, blessing, forgiveness, and protection. These are, the, are, are four things that were just so critical to the lives of the Israelites around this time. Life, blessing, forgiveness, and protection. They also happen to, be, happen to be four things that, apart from God, don't exist. So the imperative to rebuild, this, uh, to rebuild this temple is clear, and it's urgent. The Israelites had spent over 50 years in exile apart from God's manifest presence, and then they return from exile to Jerusalem. They begin which, uh, work which, uh, which quickly subsides. And, and then nearly 20 more years pass. So now, all in all, we're talking about 70 years. 70 years have gone by. And the Jewish people have gone without their representative source of life, blessing, forgiveness, and protection. And then finally, God just says, enough. Enough. 
these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people say, it's just not yet time. Suggesting, of course, that in their earthly wisdom, they knew when the appropriate time would be. Can you maybe sense the source of the Lord's frustration here? Can you maybe get a sense of why he's referring to him simply as these people? So parents, grandparents, and caretakers, maybe this will resonate with you. Let's say that you have established a rhythm at your own households that consists of chores and responsibilities and free time, uh, personal time. Now, the chores and responsibilities, of course, are the things that need to be handled first. And so on one Saturday morning, you notice as you're passing through the kitchen that the the trash can in the kitchen is overflowing. And so you decide to uh, go to the children uh, whose responsibility is to take the trash out and let them know that their first thing task had not yet been accomplished. So you go to the other room where you find them either reading a book or playing a video game, and you say to these children, hey, just a heads up, I noticed that the trash can is overflowing. Would you do me a favor and please knock that out? And then maybe, just maybe, what's the response you get? Yeah, yeah, in a minute. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll handle it in a second. I, I, I'm busy. I'm, let me do this first. Okay, I'm sensing a palpable tension in the room, like perhaps this is something that you've gone through in your personal lives. Let me handle this first. I'm sorry, excuse me? But can you sense maybe where the Lord was coming from in dealing with this rebellious people? And if nothing else, maybe the book of Haggai is giving us caretakers of children useful language on how to deal with these situations. Maybe, maybe Haggai has pointed out for us how we handle it when children go into rebellion. Right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, these children say that it is not yet time to take out the trash. Thus says the parent, you are exiled to your bedroom and a curse be upon your video game playing. Why? Because of my trash can which lies overflowing in the kitchen. Thus says the parent. Now friends, I'm not trying to make this point seem trite, but reducing the spiritual attitude of the Israelites to childlike disobedience, I think it's appropriate. And lest we think that we can simply say, thank you God that I am not like these Israelites from the time of Haggai who were dealing with misguided priorities, let's recall for a minute the specific things that God points out through the prophet that these Israelites were encountering. God says, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but you're still thirsty. You eat but you never have enough. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a bag with holes in it. Does any of that resonate with you? Are, you, are we certain that we are not a people who says still to God today, Lord, it's just not time? It's not yet time, Lord, to submit fully to your will. It's not yet time, Lord, to cut out the things from my life that distract me from following you fully. Now, I know that's what I should do. I know that that's where I'm going with you, Lord, in, in, in my walk, my spiritual walk with you. But, but God, it's just not yet time. There are other things that I need to do first. The great church father, Augustine of Hippo, experienced something similar to this, and he recounts it uh, in, in his work, Confessions. And, and those of you who have read this book, do you remember the prayer that Augustine prayed to, uh, to, uh, to the Lord during what he, uh, a time in his life that he described as being a wretchedly unhappy time. Do you remember the prayer that he prayed? He, sort, he said, Lord, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. 
right? That was his prayer. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. See, Augustine, like the Israelites, knew that God had an expectation of him. For him, God's expectation was sexual purity, which is something that Augustine struggled with. And for the Jews, the expectation was rebuilding the temple. And while the circumstances surrounding these two different matters are vastly different, the thing that ties them together is that God is not the primary operating factor in either of their existences. God is not primary. Instead, self-service and self-satisfaction are. And what's the result? Well, for Augustine, it is, it is this period in his life that he just describes as being wretchedly unhappy. And for the Jewish people in Haggai's time, it's the cursed outcomes that we see described by the prophet. They expected much, but it turned out to be little, and what they brought home, God blew away. And I wonder if the absolute audacity of this is becoming just a little bit more clear. Think logically for a second about what the Jewish people were actually saying to God, and, and what, think, think about what Augustine was actually playing, praying to the Lord as well. In fact, Augustine said that the reason that he prayed to the Lord, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet, was because that he was afraid that God was going to answer his prayer too soon. And in doing so, God was going to be interfering with the simple pleasures of his life. He knew what God expected, yet he chose to continue to pursue a life of sin. In other words, he felt like it was not yet time for him to be pure. Likewise, think of this remnant community in Jerusalem. They knew that God expected them to rebuild the temple, they ex- that God expected the temple to be built, but they, choose, uh, they chose to continue to pursue a life of self-satisfaction and self-care by concerning themselves with their own homes, their old paneled and adorned houses, instead of the house of the Lord. Think about the logic of what they're actually saying here. They're actually saying, Lord, I know you have demands of me, and I know that the way of holiness involves me submitting to those demands, but I feel, Lord, I just feel it's not yet time for me to submit to what you're saying, by which I mean that I'm going to go on and continue sinning. I'm going to go on living my life of sin, and then, and then when my life has been satisfied by my sinful ways, when I have become self-satisfied by pursuing, by pursuing my own wants and needs, then, Lord, I'm going to give you all the glory and all the honor. Do we hear how ridiculous that sounds when we tease it out that way? Lord, I just need a little bit more time to sin, and then when I'm, once I'm done that sinning, then I'm yours. It's absurdity. It's absolute absurdity. Every time we say to God, now is not the right time, we are pretending that time itself is ours to make determinations with instead of rightly acknowledging that time itself belongs to God. Time belongs to the Lord, and He will do with it what He will. Why? For His own pleasure. Friends, even the breath in our lungs, the very breath that we use to say, God, it's just not time yet, that breath belongs to God. There is not one element of this equation that is not sovereignly under God's control, and yet our objections persist. Lord, make me chaste, but first, let me, let me fulfill my self-satisfaction. Lord, help us to finish this temple, but first, we're going to panel our own homes and perfect our own lives. Lord, I'm going to give more of myself to your mission, but first, let me ensure that I have that job that's going to secure my financial assurity moving forward. Lord, I, I'm going to ask you to, be, to reign sovereign in all aspects of my life, but first, let me make sure that that guy gets elected into office and not that guy. But first, but first, 
But first, if not for divine intervention, would this cycle ever stop? Because this cycle can be exhausting. It's a racetrack that just never ends. It's pervasive dissatisfaction, pervasive worrying, nonstop pursuit of the next thing, and it's tiring. And this is what happens when the material elements of this world are elevated up to that idol status. Everything that's done in pursuit of that idol is an in vain racetrack. Perhaps one of the most, if not the most troubling thing the ancient people of Israel faced was the fact that their temple had become a routine part of their lives. And, and not that the temple itself was routine, but that the ruined nature of the temple was routine. Friends, 16 years is a long time for a partially destroyed building to be strewn about. And it's interesting to note that if, if there were any children bur- uh, born during this time, all they would have known of the temple was this, was this ruined bit of, of garbage on the ground. That's all they would have ever known because we can imagine, I think, people walking in Jerusalem in the vicinity of the temple around this time. And, and when they were doing so, I doubt they were actually talking about the temple. Certainly they weren't talking about it in any way that brought it glory or honor or talked about the indwelling nature of God because how could you? How could you describe the pile of garbage as being, well, this is where God dwells, and then step over it and move on about your way without giving it much care? Instead, the ruined temple was ignored. And the longer it was, the longer it was ignored, the more it became normal. And after some time, nature, by which I mean weeds and plants and shrubs, likely would have begun to grow up around it and reclaim it. And what started out as a temple for the Lord then became a bit of an eyesore and then ultimately ended up as just being that thing over there. The very dwelling place of God, half finished, abandoned, ruined, ignored, and eventually, and I think most tragically, all of that just became normal. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson calls this the spiritual malaise of the people. Their spiritual deficiency had given way to a material deficiency which has resulted in the normalization of a ruined temple. So what happened? Because we're parachuting in, I want to let you know what happened this, and I even encourage you to go read two short chapters, read it this week, uh, time permitting. I'm happy to report that Haggai's message did stir in the hearts of the people, and they did, in fact, return to working on the temple and praise God for that. So are are we to read this as a singular event that simply gives us insight into God's historic inner workings with his people? Or are there themes that remain beyond Haggai's time and beyond the time of that remnant in Israel? Now certainly after returning from exile, God's people would have learned through this experience, right? They would have learned that keeping God's sovereign lordship foremost in their heart, foremost in their mind, by which I mean making God first, making God the priority, surely they would have learned that this is the right way to be in community with God. So what happened? Well, 500 years later, Jesus was teaching to a gathering of his followers, and he was teaching about prayer and fasting and almsgiving, and he was teaching about love and adultery and piety and retribution. And even with all these themes that he was discussing with these gathered people, Jesus knew he was teaching to a group who was distracted, a group who were struggling with priority and struggling with sin. 
He was teaching to a group who were preoccupied with the self and who were obsessed and worried about where their next meal would come from or, or what it is that they were going to clothe their bodies with. And because our Lord is gracious and kind, Jesus told this gathered group, don't worry. Jesus told them that God the Father had accounted for all of these needs, which means that all of their needs are accounted for. So our Lord told them not to worry about what they were going to eat or what they were going to drink or what they were going to wear. Instead, Jesus said to seek first God's kingdom, seek first God's righteousness, make that the priority. All the other things will be given as well. That's what Jesus taught 500 years after the events of Haggai. So what about today? I mean, we've had 2,500 years to reflect on what Haggai preached in Jerusalem so long ago, and we've had 2,000 years to reflect on the teachings of Jesus. Are we now ready to, to say that collectively, we, the, 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 the gathered Christian church, are we ready to affirm that God is our priority all of the time? Can we say that we, we always put God first in every circumstance and in every situation? Or are there times when we still struggle to do so? Friends, I know I do. And assuming that may be the case for others here this morning, maybe there's something else that we've gleaned from this over time. Maybe we've learned how to respond to God's requirements. I mean, God used Haggai to call on the people to get to work rebuilding the temple. But in order to get to work rebuilding the temple, the people first had to consider their ways. They had to give careful thought to the things that they were doing and to take note of the temple's status so they knew what they were working with. Now, Needless to say, for us, uh, the term temple and the idea of temple does not function the same way as it did for the ancient Israelites. So the idea of maintaining the temple is not a reference for us to get to work on various building projects here at Bethel, at Bethel Church or at any other church, despite the fact that this passage has been used countless times to that effect. More times than we can imagine, this text has been used to motivate congregational building efforts. You can imagine the chair of the building committee going, uh, we need a new roof, time to dust off old Haggai 1. And you can imagine then the pastor coming out, shouting at the congregation, consider your ways, give the church more money, we're putting a steeple on this thing. And maybe you can use this text to talk about the importance of sacrificial giving, but it's not the primary focus of what Haggai is saying. The building isn't the point. The temple is. So I'll close with this, reading from John chapter 2. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. For Christians, the temple meaning the indwelling of God with his people, was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ, humbled, incarnate, here with us, present with us. What's the status of your temple? I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and the God's, God's spirit dwells in you? Likewise, Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 6, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, 
As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. For Christians, the Apostle Paul outlines the continued indwelling of God with his people through the work of the Spirit manifestly made known by the gathered church. Paul reminds us that the building wasn't the point. The temple was. And so I'll ask you one more time. What's the status of your temple? Is it well-maintained? Is it a little dusty? Maybe a little overgrown? Is it the case that a foundation was laid maybe years ago and initially some really solid work was done on it, but, but is it now the case that perhaps since that time it's been largely ignored? Has that been the case for so long that now a ruined temple, and by which I mean a, a ruined relationship or a half-finished relationship with Jesus, has that become normal? Are we pursuing first God's kingdom and God's righteousness through the indwelt temple that God has offered in the Spirit? Friends, the call in Haggai is to consider our ways, to give careful thought to our ways. The call is to put things first, God things first. Is that what we're doing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful when we know so much about a passage. We know where it comes from, who said it, when it was said, to whom it was said. But Lord, humble us to know that we know nothing beyond what you convey through it. Thank you, God, for this direct message that calls on us to consider our ways. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus Christ who represents for us all the things that they were seeking, these ancient Israelites were seeking in the temple. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to humble us, that we would continue to seek you, you first, your kingdom, and your righteousness. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.